Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 2, Episode 8. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, we will be infusing a recent webinar with John Hamburger, President of Franchise Times, and we'll talk about recent updates to the franchise industry and particularly what is going on in the lending market for M&A acquisitions and franchising right now. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the Boiler Room. Well, hey, everybody. This is Rick Ormsby. How are you? It's a great day today. Uh, thanks for joining. One of the things I'm, I'm really excited about today is, is we went out into the marketplace and reached out to probably you know, somewhere around 30, no, 25 national lenders and uh, really put together a nice little survey and got their thoughts on the on the lending market right now and what they see the future will be both, you know, kind of a, a kind of a qualitative view of the market and also a quantitative view, kind of what rates should look like and, and what lease adjusted leverage will look like and how it'll all change. And so I'm hopeful that that'll be a nice takeaway for you from listening to this. I haven't seen anywhere where there's been kind of a wide scale survey of franchise lenders yet. So hopefully that'll, uh, that'll be valuable to you. And that'll be kind of the meat and potatoes of what we talk about. We'll make that uh, most of our or a lot of our discussion today. A couple of things I'll say. Number one, really super, uh, you know, pumped to hear a lot of my friends and clients, a lot of you who may be on this webinar talking about a return to health of your business and really some really exciting sales in P5. And for those of other of you who are on a monthly system through the end of May, so the month of May was really a good month. I've heard a lot of our QSR clients, the large QSR clients are telling me their sales are up. Some, you know, somewhere between 15 and almost 40% year over year for P5 or the month of May. And this is spanning across most types of brands, not just pizza or chicken or tacos or burgers, but across really lots of the brands. So I'm really, uh, really excited for you guys. And, and for those of you who aren't participating in it yet, because you're mostly a dine-in concept or you're a fast casual concept, just hang in there. I don't know what, what life is like in your area of the country, but we're seeing a lot of a lot of people and a lot of foot traffic around in our retail centers now. So keep hoping and praying for, for a, a great recovery. And for those of you who are doing well, man, bank that cash flow while you can and congratulations for it. The next thing I wanted to do is, um, so I wanted to, to mention quickly, those of you who know me, Rick Ormsby, Unbridled Capital helps people buy and sell companies and raise money for their companies. And so if you have any interest in joining our database, go to unbridledcapital.com and there's a little yellow box up at the top right and you can click and join our database. I'll tell you, with the positivity kind of sort of returning to the market in kind of a, a trickling format, we've um, it looks like we're going to be a kind of announcing th two or three, maybe four new M&A assignments in the next probably 30 days or less, a couple of 50 to 100 unit deals uh, in the pizza space a chicken brand uh, deal that's probably going to be 10 to 10 ish units. And then, um, you know, and, and, and also a fast casual brand in the Southeast. That's kind of the largest franchisee in a kind of a tier two, tier three brand, I think. So a couple of really interesting deals coming out now. So, so sellers are kind of returning to the marketplace. We're also doing two Taco Bell recapitalizations right now. We're helping people find new debt for their business, either buy out partners or just to refinance an existing lender. So, 
that's coming back to the market a little bit too. We're excited about that. Uh, so, so you guys probably, if you're doing really well, I got off the phone with a Wingstop franchisee yesterday and he was like, Hey man, the, the banks are calling me again. So I'm really pleased ab ab about that. You can also go to our website too, before we start unbridledcapital.com, go to the top. If you want to see our old uh, webinars that we've done. So we just uh, did one a couple of weeks ago with MMB law firm and Derek Ball at Unbridled's office talking about PPP loan forgiveness program. And it was really well attended. We had over 200 questions asked in that webinar. And that one's going to be just go to our media section and then a webinar link. And you'll see our three prior webinars. And that's the most recent of the three. So please go there. I mean, I think it's a, just a wealth of information for your business. I mean, all kinds of questions. Do cell phone bills count for PPP forgiveness? What happens to my retirement plan? What's full-time equivalent? All these kind of questions. I'm over the $2 million threshold. You know, what, what happens? Am I going to be judged differently? How's that going to look? So there, there's all kinds of technical answers to your questions. We also did one on business interruption insurance and then one on the real estate market and the M&A market. And those are all up on the website. So, and then the last thing I'll say before we start, and then, and then I'll see if John's uh, still with us, but, but we have three upcoming webinars. I'm pushing them out just a little bit because it's summertime, but one's going to be in ba on bankruptcy. Another with uh, Capital Spring on uh, alternative financing uh, methods. If you're if you're running short and and you uh, you're looking for equity for your business, and then the third is going to be later this summer. We're going to have uh, Mike Egan of uh, BMO Harris Bank on the call to talk a little bit more about the lending market at the middle or end of the summer, so we can kind of continue to take temperature checks as we you know every sixty to ninety days to see how the M and A market and the recapitalization market is uh, is is performing. And, and what's going on in the lending market. So, John, are you still there? Yeah, I know. I'm still here, Rick. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, totally can hear you. So we'll go We'll go with it then. Awesome. I'm glad you're... I can see you, but I uh, I can't see myself on this, but go ahead. Awesome. Okay. Well, I, well let's... Well, we'll, we'll just... We'll, uh, you're, you're a dashing young man, John, but I guess we're not going to be able to see that today. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm going to look... look I'm, I'm honored that you're here. You know, John is a... Is a founder and uh, president of Franchise Times. He's a name in the industry that everyone really knows and uh, just a delightful man and a, and a knowledgeable man. He's got a lot of experience in the industry. And uh, Ed, John, could you maybe introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, thanks, Rick. And uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, as Rick mentioned, I'm John Hamburger. I'm the founder of Franchise Times Corp. And uh, we publish Franchise Times Magazine. Uh, I'm sure you've seen it. We also publish the Restaurant Finance Monitor. That's where I spend most of my time is on the monitor. And then we have another publication uh, called Food Service News and Food on Demand News. And we produce a couple of conferences. I'm sure some of you have been to our Restaurant Finance and Development Conference, which is in November in Las Vegas every fall. So that's me. Thanks, Rick. Yeah, totally, John. And uh, thoughts go out to you, brother. Prayers too. I know you're in Minneapolis and it's, uh, I know it's a, a situation there so. Has been has been alarming, you know, all the way around. It's definitely not good for business. I would I would say that, Rick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. We live, we just live in a sad world at times, my friend. You know, um, but um, yeah. So so thank you for being here. And I'm just going to tell you know, it's just kind of going to be an interchange back and forth. And I'm I'm excited to to kind of unfold this this survey to, for you guys. But the first is going to we're just going to just chat, John and I, are about the temperature out there and then talk a little bit from a broad perspective about lending in a post-COVID-19 world. And then we'll unveil this 10-question survey uh, from the lending community and talk a little bit about that. Then we'll talk about how to get a deal done right now in this marketplace. 
And uh, again, like I was talking about at the beginning of the kind of, of the webinar here, I think things are returning to a little bit of positivity, right? I think we can all feel it, hopefully, in the market. And then we'll do a little Q&A with John and we'll wrap up. So just to get a start here, I'll start off and just say, look, I, what I was saying earlier is it seems in the QSR segment, at least, that sales are up pretty substantially. I mean, almost incredibly in a lot of the QSR brands. If you're not a QSR brand, if you're a casual dining brand, if you're a if you're an independent or if you're maybe a fine dining brand or even, you know, a fast casual brand, you're not probably experiencing this level of sales. Although I hope, I hope that you're trending uh, back in a more positive direction, but, but sales are up uh, big in many brands uh, right now, especially for May or P5. I think we see some optimism returning. I, I see, I hear a lot of great stories from franchisees who've just gotten gritty, you know, and have taken this time to really kind of, really strengthen their business by making good management decisions, by getting more involved in the daily P&Ls and all the things that happen from an operational perspective, tackling speed of service with uh, greater fortitude. So some of, the, some of the things I've been hearing from the franchise community are really encouraging. Folks are really buckling down to, to, to succeed. And then, you know, I kind of just say that uh, we have this kind of quiet, uh, you know, a lot of people have been on deferred royalties, deferred landlord payments, deferred bank payments, and some of those uh, restructurings are, are starting to happen, talking to some of the third parties and some of the lenders and, and, uh, and landlords out there who are, who are uh, gearing up to, to get paid and get paid in full again. And that'll be, that'll be an interesting discussion as we move that through the industry. Now, John, what do you say about all this stuff? Any, any comments here from you? Any, what are you seeing? Yeah, I'd echo that, Rick. You know, QSR has been really strong. You know, drive-through windows are worth their weight in gold. You know, it's amazing some of the chicken concepts, how well they're doing. Popeyes, Zaxby's, you know, Raising Cane's, KFC. A lot of the regional pizza concepts are really doing well. Marco's Pizza, Topper's Pizza. You know, the question you're going to have to ask is, are these concepts just being discovered? Or is this pickup in business that they're seeing here during the COVID period, is that going to continue? And then also, you know, what happens with the, dry, the dining rooms when they open? But it does seem to me that optimism is returning. Now that the casual diners are opening up, a lot of the restaurant analysts are kind of excited. They're seeing a lift to their overall same store sales, even as their off-premise slow, slows down. So I, I would say that things are looking better than they have in a couple of weeks in our industry. Yeah, no doubt about it. You know, coupled coupled with the PPP money and, you know, and, and sales that are in, in some cases, uh, significantly above where they were. A lot of franchisees are going to have a good summer, I think, you know? You know, you think about all the stimulus that's gone out into the, into the markets, you know, the $600 a week supplemental unemployment, you know, the $1,200 stimulus checks that went out, you know, the PPP money that went out to businesses. You know, the Federal Reserve has pumped a lot of money into the consumer economy, and that's why you're, you're seeing it so much in the uh, QSR and pizza and, and, and even some of the casual dining, a lot of their, I look at Outback Steakhouse and how strong, Texas Roadhouse, uh, Olive Garden, how strong their to-go business has been. You got to look at that and say there's a lot of money being pumped into the economy right now and it's benefiting some of these restaurants. Yeah. Yeah, I actually I actually did to go service at uh, Texas Roadhouse recently. I was amazed at how well healed it was. Goodness gracious, they had they had uh, I mean a system that was uh, that was really strong and a ton of business. Uh, you mentioned that brand particularly, so you know, yeah, you, Rick, you you mentioned the or you mentioned you went to Texas Roadhouse. To me, it's absolutely amazing when you think about it. 
the Texas Roadhouse and Olive Garden, you know, those were the two concepts that they're both of their CEOs, Gene Lee at, at uh, Darden and Kent Taylor at Texas Roadhouse. Those were the ones that had really early on dismissed delivery. You know, they, they were still doing a fair amount of to-go business, but, to, but dismissed that delivery aspect and really didn't promote it. You know, it was more of an in-store dining promotion and how well they've done and how well they've been able to pivot to that, I think is really a testament to how energetic their, their, both their management styles are. That's a great point. Really good point. Yeah. As, as we just kind of keep going here, I, I would, I, we threw down a couple of points to just kind of talk about as we talk about lending and M&A, particularly in a post-COVID-19 world. Interesting times, John. First point says, you know, historic divergence in QSR, especially sales are way up, but lending is somewhat difficult. It, I mean, I've never seen that in almost 20 years in this business. I mean, what do you say about that? It's, it's strange, isn't it? It is strange, but I think what's happened is the lenders aren't sure whether this is a COVID effect and they're kind of concerned about what happens post-COVID. So there's this, there's this uncertainty on the part of the lenders. And, it's, and if you, you, know, if you think about this whole process, these sales in QSR, Rick, didn't start out strong right away. I mean, the first week, two weeks, three weeks, you know, there was a lot of concern out there because there wasn't much action in anything, even pizza. You talk to the Domino's operators in the early days, there wasn't much going on. Well, then now all of a sudden it takes off, you know, with all this stimulus that's out there. And it's, this has really kind of got, it's thrown the lenders, I think, for a loop. You know, they're not quite sure what, what to think about. What are valuations going to be? What are these businesses going to look like as we get into the summer and the fall? I can understand why it's a concern on their part and why it's difficult. Yeah, and for those of you listening, I, you know, John's perspectives are really important here for a number of reasons. You know, uh, with the RFDC, for those of you who go every year like we do, and it's a great conference, I'll tell you, he talks to lenders almost every day, right? That's number one. Number two, Lenders are, are notoriously squeamish about getting on a call, uh, you know, and doing things like this. I think it's because they, a lot of them work for big companies that have big compliance departments. So, uh, so when 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 John and I are kind of spitballing and talking about this, we kind of are summarizing our viewpoints from talking with multiple folks. You know, John's got a better perspective than most. Well, tell me, you know, I, I put this point up too: brand reordering, drive-through, and delivery concepts are clear winners. Uh, what are you seeing there, and, uh, and, and which brands are you really excited about? Rick, first of all, I, I mentioned uh, early on that Raising Canes. I mean, yeah. I, just, I just can't believe the amount of business that Raising Canes are doing through, through their drive through window. My daughter lives in a suburb of Minneapolis, and I was down to see her two weeks ago. And there must have been 40 cars, 40 cars out onto the main drag going through the drive through window at Raising Cane. So, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a brand that I think has just, is really taken off and is really going to take off. You know, when you talk about brand reordering, you know, I think what's, what's really interesting here is how efficient the QSRs have had to become. And, you know, I talked to a number of different operators. KFC operator told me a couple of weeks ago, he was up 8%, but his labor was down 4%. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you, 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 tremendous efficiency. And that's, that's going to make it interesting to see what happens here. Are, are they even going to, are some of these operators even going to want to open the dining rooms? Mm-hmm. You know, that's going to be, I think, a big question coming up in the next uh, couple of weeks. But clearly, drive-through and delivery have been very successful here. Yeah, I think it's a really good point because we've seen the same thing in some of our transactions that labor and food costs, but particularly labor costs have been significantly down with the 
with dining rooms largely closed. And the question is, how long will this amount of demand continue through the drive-through to put, put to push sales so much higher? Right. We got to think that's not going to stay that way forever. And when that happens and sales drop, then maybe you know, then maybe operators will be forced with a different decision to reopen their dining rooms. But it's easy to keep your dining room closed now because your sales are high and your labor savings are amazing. So you're getting kind of a double effect. I was just on the phone with a you know, one of the country's largest operators here a few minutes ago. And I, you know, I think he made double the profit in May that he made last year at the same time. Wow. Isn't that amazing? You know, <laughs> isn't that amazing? You know, the interesting thing I think Rick is what are the, uh, what are the brands going to do? You know, the brand, does the brand want diners inside the uh, restaurants or not? You know, are they yeah. going to, are they going to mandate that for some of the franchisees? I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how that uh, plays out. When you and I were talking a little while ago, you brought up a good point that I that I, that's not on here, but I'll just ask it of you again. You know, the, the, without naming brands specifically, you, you brought up this idea that that certain brands that were heavily penetrated with large kind of financial disinterested buyers seem to maybe have worse speed of service, and you know, through the drive-through, just kind of anecdotally, than maybe the ones that hadn't done that as much. Do you have any more thoughts about that? Maybe those who are on this webinar might find that interesting. Well, you know, that's been one of my, that's been one of my big complaints, you know, of this whole asset light, you know, where the franchisors were selling off stores. And it was very easy for them, Rick, to sell these stores to large multi-unit operators. And I think a number of them have gotten to the size where I don't think they run the stores as well as maybe a 30-unit operator, a 40-unit operator, maybe in a, maybe an operator who's in two markets. Well, these guys happen to be in 20 markets, 10 markets, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and I just, my, my experience is that those stores are not run that well. And one of the things that, and I'm not saying everybody in that, that category is, is that way, but I'm just seeing generally that's, that's what I run into. And, and so I think it was a financial decision. These franchisors decided, Hey, this was an easy deal. I can sell off these company stores to these franchise, big franchisees, they can get financing. I don't have to carry back any paper. You know, we can do these deals. And um, I, I think some of them are starting to really question the size of some of these franchisees. And, mm -hmm. and are, they really, are they really doing the, the brand a favor when they don't operate them as good as some of, the, some of the smaller operators? You know, it might be easier to deal with a big operator you, you, you got a, a big, big operator with 400 stores. It's easier than dealing with 10 operators with 40 stores, but not if that operator is not doing a very good job running the stores. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's something they're going to have to take a look at, uh, you know, once this is all over. It's interesting. I'm, you know, I, I think on a prior webinar, I said this, but I think I, I said that point number three here, the buyers are reemerging, some of them forcefully. And I, I really believe that. I mean, in the last couple of weeks, we've had quite a few, buyers coming back to us saying we're ready to buy we want to buy something we're you know want to buy a business we want you know i had two calls yesterday with guys uh one of them was a family office back group and the other a bigger operator looking to get into another brand and so those kind of phone calls are coming back somewhat forcefully now and people calling all the time so it's interesting and so you know at unbridled we probably had i don't know 15 deals that we were working on pre-covid and and you know, a lot of them have come back now. And in the last three or four weeks, we've had six or seven of those deals really push forward towards like buyer and seller signing a purchase agreement or buyer and seller agreeing again to a price 
that might have been slightly lower or had some changes in the terms in order to combat a, a slight reduction in what the banks were now willing to lend because of the crisis. And, and those deals are, are back on and they're all, they're all moving pretty well. So I'm seeing right now that valuations haven't changed substantially in the QSR businesses that we're largely representing. Now, some of the ones that that uh, have a you know that don't fit the profile of heavy drive-through, fat, quick, quick service food aren't doing as well. You know, Rick, why wouldn't somebody want to buy a QSR chain? Think about this: yeah. 2008, yeah. 2009 recession. They were stress tested. They came through fine, and mm-hmm. now you you have the ultimate stress test: being shut down for a couple of weeks, forced to shut down your dining rooms. You shift to drive-through, and you're doing more sales than you were doing a year ago. Why wouldn't you want to buy that business? Yeah. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. The only comment you might say is, well, I don't want to buy it on too high. The, the EBITDA <laughs> numbers are too high. You know, but everyone, everyone wants to buy something cheaper, you know, for cheaper than what, uh, than what, it's, than what, it's, than what people want to sell it for. So that's, that's an age-old problem. But yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. It's a, it's, it really is a recession-resistant business as long as gas prices don't sneak up into the 3 and $4 a gallon, you know? Yeah, um, really. It really does well. well. What do you think about just before we get into the lender survey? Any comments on loans? I mean, look, we residential loans, you know, are a little bit harder to find than they were. I'm hearing. Uh, I'm actually, you know, uh, know a little bit about this as I'm selling my house right now. But interest rates are really low, and you know, we had four offers on our house in one day. PPP markets appear fluid, right? You know what I mean. But commercial loans are harder to find for, for sure, and and selling bulk real estate is largely a uh, is largely still probably somewhat illiquid. I mean, what are you what are you hearing? Anything different than that? Yeah, I would I would say that there are still groups though that are interested in buying real estate. I think it is going to be for for the next 6 to 12 months a little tougher to finance it just given all the things that the lenders have had to, the commercial lenders have had to deal with over the last 3 or 4 months. It's going to be it's going to take a while for that to shake out, but there's still there's still an appetite out there for commercial real estate. Yeah, good. Yeah, good, good, good deal. Just a little harder to find. And let's hope that it recovers so that they stay healthy and, and, and it becomes fluid again. So this, this is a 10 uh, survey question. I always get kind of, I, I always, for some reason, overestimate or underestimate the amount of work that our company does, John, because I'm, you know, our, we're almost always working on somewhere between 15 and 20 deals, right? So I'm like, oh man, everybody else is too. So my first question which obviously is not happening that way. But the first question is how many franchise M&A deals are you personally trying to fund right now? And uh, there, I think we had 17 or 18 responses. We sent out, I think we had about 25, a little bit more than 25 banks that we queried and reached out to. We got about 17, 18 responses. A lot of all the big major ones that you would know. And of course, I'm not going to divulge who they are or or how they answered particularly, but you can see directionally here. Uh, Kind of interesting. Looks like almost 40% of them had none. They're not even working on an assignment right now. Uh, and, very, and very few of them are working on a lot of assignments. Most are just working on a handful. So I think this um, may be a little bit because of the, the tepidness of the market, but it may also be because there's not a lot of supply on the market too. I think anyone at Unbridled would tell you that we were loaded with business up to COVID, but you know, since COVID, it's kind of gotten quiet, right? So there's not a lot of supply of businesses that are on the market right now. And maybe Maybe that's a, a reason why we're, we're at that place. And then, you know, and I'll go through number two, John, and I'll let you comment on both of these and what you, what you see, what you make of them. But the second question is, how is your bank looking at, at new franchise M&A loans going forward? And this is pretty interesting. 
it looks to me that not lending right now is probably somewhere around 20%, right? Maybe a little bit less, 15%. Looking but unlikely to lend maybe another 15%. So maybe got about a little less than a third of the people are basically the lenders are not lending of this survey. You know, you, you have a little sliver that are saying open and looking to take market share. Now, of course, my plug for Unbridled is I, I know who's looking to take market share. So if you're looking to recap your company, you should call us. But, you know, cautiously lending for the right circumstance is a, clearly a majority of, of what we're seeing here. What do you see through this, John? Any, any comments? Yeah. yeah, Rick, you know, that's, that's consistent with what I'm hearing. You know, again, with the lenders, the two big issues are the cash flows. Are these cash flows that QSR restaurants having right now, are they sustainable post-COVID? And how do you value these companies? And, you know, I think one of the things you think about the lending community I mean, so many of these banks had to rally to produce these PPP loans. Mm-hmm. And there's still this uncertainty, although I think, I think when the House passed this bill the other day, it's going to be good for restaurants. But there's still this uncertainty of this PPP loan forgiveness. That's entering into a lot of this. Cautiously lending for the right circumstance. That means the biggest part of your chart, your pie chart there, you know, that's lenders working with their clients, their existing customers, ones they understand, you know, and I think that there's, op- there's, there's going to be some lending that's going on there. But when a new one comes in, you're going to get these questions about valuation, cash flows, you know, what's the status of the PPP loan? Have you, have you paid all your landlords? Are those up to date? it begins the underwriting process, which I think is going to take a little bit longer right now until we get past all this COVID stuff. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. uh, Wouldn't you say, John, and I certainly would, that that whatever process you're going through, you know, whether it's refinancing your company or you're looking to buy out a partner or you're looking to sell your company or you're buying franchises, whatever it is, expect at the current time that it's going to be a little slower than it otherwise would be because underwriting is just going to be a little bit more difficult. Yep. I agree. Uh, Yeah. You know, as we go through this survey and as we go through this webinar, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to type them out. We'll, we'll keep our eyes peeled over here on the right and, and try to answer them as we go along. There's a little chat function there. And then the other thing I'd tell you, too, is at the end of this presentation, we will we have it recorded and we'll send out the recording and this presentation to everyone who signed up. So don't worry about that. That'll come out probably within three or four days after the presentation. So here we go. Question number three. How soon will franchise lending get back to pre-COVID-19 levels? Now, you know, it's one man's opinion, right? But since they're lenders, I suppose they have a uh, pretty important opinion to give. So it's kind of an interesting uh, graph. And I, I, you know, you all on the, on the webinar would know me as an optimistic person generally, realistic, but optimistic. And I probably would have, have put this, if I was uh, voting here, I probably would have put this in the six to nine month, maybe nine to 12 month kind of range, right? But it looks it looks like we're pretty heavily leaning into the one to two years from now, which may be a little surprising to me. I don't, what do you think about that, John? Does that surprise you? Well, you know, Rick, if I look back to 2008 and 2009 recession, that's fairly consistent with yeah. what happened there. You know, lending, 2007 was a big year in franchise lending, but then it shut down in 08. And it really didn't come back until around 2010. It took a full two years I think, for lenders to get their hands around some of the workouts. You know, they were doing the workouts on the banks themselves. And so I think this is consistent with 08 and the 09 recession. It could change to the positive if, for instance, you know, we didn't see 
a second wave of this virus that everybody is predicting here in the fall and next year. It could come back a little bit quicker, but it's consistent with what happened in 08, 09. Well said. Just while we're on the topic of 08, 09, any other, any other kind of things jump out in your head about similarities, you know, things you saw then that uh, you'd tell us, all of us to be aware of now? I mean, I was, I was doing deals back then and was sitting in bankruptcy courts in Delaware, and it was a, it was a, it was a tough time, you know, towards the end of it for franchising, yeah. you know. I think what's, what's going to be interesting here, and I think, you know, your operator audience is, is smart enough to figure this out, is, is you'll know fairly early in the process what your bank is going to be like. You know, you can take their temperature pretty easily, I think. I remember back in, in 08, 09, there were a few banks that decided that this was the time they were going to take market share. And so if you recall at the time, GE Capital was redoing a lot of loans, but they weren't making many loans. And it was a good time at that time to refinance out of GE Capital. And so there were a number of banks at that time that, that saw that as an opportunity and, and took advantage of it. And I think operators are going to need to you know, have that discussion with their current bank and find out what is their temperature uh, of this industry going forward. Yeah. And, you know, a little bit of this, John, was happening before COVID-19. I mean, we had two or three fairly decent sized names in the space leave or leave the space, fire everybody, one or two got bought out. Uh, and then we, and then clearly we, we had whispers of a couple of the big franchise lenders uh, saying that they weren't making any loans, uh, any new loans, uh, you know, pre, pre-COVID-19. These were just whispers, of course, but some of this was happening beforehand. And uh, I, so I'm not surprised that, that you have people that are, we're looking and will look to ramp down. But the point is a good point because several of the lenders in 09, 2010, 2011, some of them stepped in early and the ones that stepped in early built a, a fantastic practice with great franchise clients. And um, I think that's what you're referring to. And number four here, you've got post COVID-19, who will be the most likely to make, who will you be the most likely to make loans to? And this is an interesting kind of result here. So I'm just kind of let you guys think on this a little bit, but you know, the box that was checked by, you know, whatever, 75% of the people was all of the above. So we'll loan to everybody, which is one to 10 unit operator, 10 to 50 unit operator in family office, private equity. Okay. So in and of, in, in and of, itself that that doesn't really necessarily mean too much i mean it means it means something but what i think is telling in this slide is if you if you take that one but if you take that one kind of graph away you're left with will you lend to these three parties but not all of them you only have the 10 to 50 unit operator as the answer you see you see what i mean no one says i'm just going to lend to the one to 10 unit operator and no one says, I'm going to lend to the family office private equity guy. Maybe there's some learnings there. And I, I, w- I would just say this, having been in this industry for a long time since I left Young Brands in 05, I've been watching the consolidation of the one to two, 10 unit operator and frankly, been a part of it. If I went back and counted, I'd maybe 100, 100, 100 different one to 10 unit operators whose businesses I've sold. I, I don't know what the number is, but, but uh, the consolidation has been unbelievable over the last 10 to 15 years in that smaller operator space. And I got to think that will, that will continue, especially if there's something to be said here that a lot of lenders aren't going to be focusing on the one to 10 unit operators anymore. So any comments that you see there? 
Well, the one thing I would I would say is the you know the banks have always liked those ten to fifty unit operators because um, you know generally they've got a growth mindset and the bank can grow with the ten to fifty unit operator. You know the family office, the private equity, they tend to be a little more transactional, but that that you know that ten to fifty unit operator they really like. I mean, look, they're in the business of lending money. They're going to look at all these different business types. You know that that own and operate these uh, restaurants. So. You think there's a case to be made for for a little bit of a breakup of some of the large uh, groups that are out there? Uh, you know, we're going to see it in, in in certain brands and certain groups, 100% for sure. But uh, the 10 to 50 unit operator, you and I both have always loved because they're the guy that hopped in his pickup truck and started store number one, and then built store number two and store number three, and he may have 28 units in Omaha, Nebraska, and still knows the the local band and the local football team and, and you know, and, and those sort of things and, and is involved in the community. You know, people like that type of an operator. You think that that will um, go away going forward? Or do you think that will, in terms of the, the 10 to 50 unit operator, you think there'll be more of those types of folks as maybe the larger deals may, may uh, unravel a little bit? You know, I think it's I think it's ultimately going to be up to the Wall Street investors in some of the in the big brands you know, if there's a, there was a sense early on in this crisis that some of the big brands were in trouble in terms of the financial wherewithal of some of their franchisees. I'll use an example, Pizza Hut and NPC International. You know, NPC is the largest Wendy's franchisee. It's the largest Pizza Hut franchisee. You know, the, the questions coming out of, of uh, Wall Street, you know, a day after COVID and the day after the shutdowns is... Not so much is NPC going to survive, but but is is what's how's this going to impact the franchisors collecting their royalties? You know, I got a lot of calls from people wanting to know, you know, what's the financial condition of these large franchisees, and you know, if that were to turn into a situation where you know there were some large royalty defaults, I'll bet you money the franchisors are going to go back to saying, hey, we'd rather have the 10 to 50 unit operator, you know, and split it up a little bit, diversify our risk a, a bit. You know, you look at some of the big brands, you know, like, look at like Wendy's. I mean, they got a lot of big, giant franchisees. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that they're, they're, they're looking at that right now. They're taking a look and saying, you know, do we want that kind of risk with the big uh, operators? Yeah, no doubt. You know, and it's, it's the old M&A thing. You know, I used to liken almost every analogy back to basketball because I love basketball. But you remember, you know, John, if you're a basketball fan, you know, back in the day, you know, you look at uh, Bill Russell or, or you know, Bob Cousy for the, you know, and, and those guys had short shorts and tall socks. Right. And then we get into the you know early 2000s and you have short socks and, and baggy shorts. Right. And so and then now we have short shorts again and, and medium length socks on the basketball court. Right. So things just go back. They, they just constantly change. And what you, you know, you see things getting broken up and putting back together and M&A markets kind of the same way. You know, you see the five, 10 unit operator going away and then maybe you see the 10 unit operator coming back. I'm not sure, but I do think the financial complexities are just going to continue to, to overrun the smaller operators. And, you know, while the marketplace, you know, is strong, they've just taken advantage, frankly, of, of crazy high prices on their businesses in a good way. And that's what's been right. part of this M&A boom over the last four or five years. You know, to your, to your point about how things change, you know, I can remember back in the 80s and early 90s when the franchisors were buying back franchisees. Yeah, right. You know, they could, buy, they could buy them back and they wanted to have as many company stores as they could. Well, then that changed and you saw what happened here in the in the last 10 years with them selling the 
company stores to franchisees. So there could be something that would make them yeah. want to buy them back. I don't know what that is today, but you never know. Necessity, maybe. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But let's go on here. So number five is what segment of franchise lending will your bank most favor going forward? I thought this was kind of interesting. So the first one, the little green one here is a really low number. These are highly leveraged top tier QSR brands, tacos, and a few burger chains as examples. So, I mean, these are like the eight and a half times Taco Bell deals, right? And the seven times Wendy's deals, these big, these, these larger, high, highly leveraged, high value deals is what I was trying to ask from lenders, which frankly have been the ones dominating the, the stage over the last couple of years. Look at how low that number is. And instead, you see a lot here in the middle, which is mid-leverage legacy QSR brands. You know, I, I mean, I know that's kind of a vague comment, but I was trying to kind of approximate like a, I don't know, you know, like a, like an Arby's or a, you know, you type of chain, you know, have its good positive momentum, you know, but a legacy brand with a lot of locations. And then you saw here like a mid leveraged QSR brand with resurgence, like some of these pizza chains, like Pizza Hut or Papa John's where, where sales are through the roof now, or some of the chicken chains, like maybe KFC or Popeye's, or maybe to your point, Raising Cane's or some of the others. Interesting. What do you, what do you, what do you make it? What do you make of that? You know, I think the lenders are pretty smart. I mean, you look at some of these highly leveraged uh, deals, you know, they're not anxious to get involved in those. They have their underwriting standards that they, uh, they've been following and pretty good about it. And distress deals, you know, that's always comes with a lot of hair too. You know, you got, yeah. you got a, uh, you've got to believe in the turnaround and, and uh, you know, that's a, that's a big leap of faith for a lot of uh, commercial bankers. No doubt about it. Well, if you're in if you're in chicken pizza or, you know, like a sonic drive-in type of concept, I mean, I just think it's good news for you particularly. I, I just think you're going to get a lot more attention than you have in the past and more capital put towards you, which is ultimately going to be great for your brand and good for, you know, unbridled and our clients, right, who are, who are buying and selling these companies. You know, the highly leveraged deals that, you know, the, the lenders don't appear to be wanting to favor going forward, they're just going to need more equity to transact at the same multiple as before. Good news is for brands like Taco Bell, there's buyers willing to stand in a line for, you know, two years, right, to buy a, a, that type of a business because they want to get in the brand so much. And they'll just necessarily have to sacrifice a little bit on their returns and increase the amount of equity they put into these transactions, which no surprise there. No surprise. So from a post-COVID-19, how likely will it be for your bank to lend to a casual dining brand? This one surprised me, John. So, we, it, you know, it's a pretty pretty evenly broken out pie chart here with a lot of people saying somewhat likely or likely. I'm really surprised by that too, Rick. You know, the banks have really spent the last five years, I think, kind of working their portfolios away from casual dining to say um, likely, you know, likely if a good well-capitalized operator comes along. There are a lot of good well-capitalized operators in casual dining. It's not like everybody out there is is over-leveraged and suffering. I know a number of operators who uh, own their own real estate, very um, low amounts of debt. They're going to come through that. So that little green sliver on the pie chart looks, uh, looks like, uh, you know, that would be an okay uh, choice for them. Somewhat likely, you know, that's kind of like saying, uh, maybe, you know, I, I, okay, I don't want to offend you by saying somewhat unlikely. So I'll say somewhat likely, um, you know, it depends on the deal. 
Could so be. there's not a not a lot of not a lot of action here if you look at this for casual dining. Yeah, interesting, interesting. All right, so number seven, what part of the loan process will get the greatest increase in scrutiny from your risk department? I just threw four kind of random items out here. You know, they weren't necessarily correlated. There's a million different things, but I just wanted to see what kind of feedback we got. You know, so in other words, if if I, the borrower, am coming to the bank, what's the bank going to be most concerned about with making me a loan of these four items? And it was a pretty even breakout, really. But personal guarantees took a bump up than from what maybe I, I would have expected. I put it on there because I figured in the environment that we're in, bankers are going to want more collateral and they're going to want more guarantees. And personal guarantees were a thing that were large, you know, in, in a frothy market were largely things that were going away for decent sized loans, right? So so uh, it's interesting a little bit to see that. Uh, leases, I put that on there because obviously lease scrutiny is going to be bigger going forward. Your relationship with your landlord and the security of the lease that you have, those are going to be important items to receiving a loan from a bank. Any, any uh, comments there, John, that you see? Yeah, you know, the one, Rick, on personal guarantees always pops up in a downturn, you know, when you're coming out of a downturn. And then it goes away as, you know, one or two banks decide they don't want the personal guarantees, and then it becomes less of a factor. And so I, I, I get that. I think leases is an interesting one. I think that's going to be something where I think operators are going to have to, as part of their pitch to the lender or their underwriting package is going to, they're going to have to explain those leases that they have and, and what are the, what are the bumps and uh, you know, what are the, what are the, what are all the additional charges in there? I, I think that's an interesting one. Yeah, I agree. Number eight. So what's the primary metric you use to make franchise loans? So, so this, uh, you know, all of the above, but there, there's clear, we put three metrics here, straight leverage, which is not, you know, just, just a uh, debt to, you know, debt to EBITDA basically. Uh, fixed charge coverage ratios and lease adjusted leverage. So, you know, you hear a lot about lease adjusted leverage in the marketplace, right? But, you know, if you look at the pie chart here, probably twice as many lenders were, were focused on fixed charge coverage ratios principally before lease adjusted leverage. So that's a that's a ratio. And for those of you who have to do covenant reporting with your banking and with your lenders, you're, you're probably calculating your pre and post fixed charge coverage ratios. So those become important for not only getting a loan, but also servicing, you know, having your loan serviced with a lender. Lease adjusted leverage is obviously a big term we continue to hear in the M&A market a lot. And then we see that, you know, most lenders look at all three. What do you hear? You hear about the same thing, I'm sure. We're always talking about lease adjusted leverage, but the fixed charge coverage ratio is a big, a big ratio that lenders look at. You know, I've always Rick looked at I've always looked at the lease adjusted leverage as a way to kind of stretch stretch an M and A deal. The fact that the that they're looking at straight leverage, fixed charge coverage ratio, all of the above, you know, means that they're they're underwriting and they're 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 sticking to what they want here. That's what I would say. Yeah, and I think at least adjusted leverage is typically in the past several years been somewhere between five and a half and as high as six times. And someone might correct me if I'm wrong on the webinar, but I believe just off of memory, it's it's eight times rent plus uh, total funded debt divided by pre, uh, pre post GNA EBITDA is how you calculate uh, lease adjusted leverage. And so what you end up, do, uh, end up doing for M&A transactions is you you know, you would assume at least adjusted leverage of whatever the number is, let's call it 5.75, and you know what the rent is, and you know what the post-GNA EBITDA is, so you solve this little seventh grade equation for your total funded debt, and that becomes how a 
that becomes how a lender uh, looks at how much money they're going to advance to a client in an M&A transaction. So it's really, really pretty simple. There's just a couple of formulas. Of course, guys like me and companies like ours will 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 then attack the EBITDA uh, number to try to get the EBITDA numbers, you know, justify a pro forma EBITDA number as strong as possible to get the total funded debt as high as possible. And then we go to the marketplace and talk with various lenders to try to get a larger, uh, to try to get the, you know, the, the, the highest amount of, uh, of least adjusted leverage. So instead of a 5.5, we might be looking for a 5.85 from, from a lender. And all these little numbers come together to help an M&A transaction get funded with less equity. And less equity obviously means more of a return for the buyer, the family office, the private equity group. And that's what drives the, uh, you know, the, the investment in the franchise. So number nine, compared to pre-COVID, what's your expectation of lease adjusted leverage reduction? And I've been kind of talking about that in a prior webinar. I thought it was going to be somewhere, it was going to land somewhere in the 35 basis points to 50 basis points range. That was kind of my guess, like three or four weeks into COVID-19, actually. And, you know, if you look at this, you see a lot of, you see a lot of kind of, if I was to average this pie chart, it's going to probably look like it's somewhere in the 45, 40 to 40, 50, 45, 50 basis points range is what most lenders are saying. And so that's pretty consistent with what I've been saying too. It's pretty substantial. You know, that's a, you know, if you, if you look at a lender going from a five and a half lease adjusted leverage to a five lease adjusted leverage, that's essentially a 10% reduction in the amount of money they're going to lend you. So it's like, if you're buying a car and the lender says, you know, Hey, you know, put down 5,000 and I'll, I'll finance you 25,000 for the 30,000 purchase price. Well, now they're, you know, that now they're essentially saying, give me 8,000 and I'll finance you 22,000. You see? So uh, some of, you know, maybe those numbers aren't exactly right, but the idea is that it just becomes a, a little bit more equity to get the deal done. Uh, what do you think? Any, any comments on that or number 10, John? Yeah, I'm just on number nine, you know, Rick, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with a little more equity in some of these restaurant deals. You know, it's, it's, uh, I think late, we're always late in the cycle, stretching everything. You know, it's okay to, as, as a lender told me, it's okay to pay your loans down, you know, and, uh, you don't always have to stretch to get exactly the last penny that the lender is going to, going to borrow you. Yeah. Um, you know, where do I see rates? Where do I see rates setting in the next one to six months? You know, one of the things that's happened during COVID is that, you know, rates have gone from, you know, the 10 year treasury, you know, has just collapsed. You know, the, the uh, Fed fund rates, are, Fed funds rates are near zero. You know, so I think what we're talking about here are the spreads are going to be a little higher just because just for risk purposes, until the lenders come to grips with what's uh, going on in the valuation and, and COVID cash flows. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely right. I probably should have clarified that whether I thought that the the, the increase was going to be because of the economy or because of the of the premium, you know, the the, the risk that the lender is going to take. My guess is you're right. It's the second, and they're yeah, yeah. they're placing, you know, basically they're saying, okay, interest rates are low, but but even though they're low, I'm going to charge you a point higher because I'm scared. Kind of exactly, thing. exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm going to take it off of screen share for a minute because I did see we had a question. So let me see what that question is, and then we'll jump back into to it. Uh, the banks will do a terrible job of managing portfolio risk. A better route of diluting systemic risk might be a portfolio of smaller, more smaller deals rather than few big deals. Same for franchisors. Look at the Domino's portfolio. Interesting. 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 
So um, risk in the, you know, but, but the, 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 the pushback to that would be if you're too big to fail, you know, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, right, right. Risk is a lot lower when you have a well-diversified portfolio versus investing your dollars, your loan dollars into just one or two investments, right? Yeah. So, the, uh, the, only, the only thing I would throw in there, Rick, is it, uh, it costs the bank just as much to make a $50, $50 million loan as it does a $5 million loan. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's why you see them pushing towards the larger amount. The same reason why you see franchisors wanting consolidation in their system, right? They, right. They, uh, it's a lot easier to, uh, to administer a franchise when you have five franchisees owning 200 units each than it is the 101 unit franchisees, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe I'll, I'll go off of that. Uh, I have to take it off screen here to see a question. There's another question here. Uh, no, no, other, no, no second question. Okay. Back to the back to the screen. So uh, just a real quick one. I'll run through this real quickly, John, and then I want to spend the last 10 minutes or so with kind of asking you questions. So how to get a deal done right now. I think lenders are backing acquirers with strong balance sheets. Right. I mean, that's that's going to be clear. A, a good a good buyer is going to have lots of options, but maybe the questionable ones will be harder to finance. More equity is probably needed. We're seeing that on several of our assignments where our buyers are having to come back probably with with maybe five to 10% more equity than they were before, even if the purchase price is, is, is squeezed a little bit. Pricing in our deals at least, and we've got probably, I mean, we're probably gonna try to do close to $750 million of restaurant sales this year across maybe you know 20 transactions. Now that may not be that high after post COVID, but, but, but uh, just to give you a view of, this, of the scale of the deals that we're seeing, we're just seeing minimal price drops, except for in brands that have really, really had struggling sales that haven't been able to come back. And largely those deals are still on hold. We see some seller financing in our deals, seller in another deal, seller was selling a lot of real estate and now they're going to keep it. We're working through a couple of conversations where, where uh, buyers are, are proposing earnouts to try to meet a gap between what the price was and what the price is now. There's going to be alternate financing structures and you'll see groups like, oh, you know, like our friends at Capital Spring who become really, you know, pertinent when the lending market becomes less, you know, less fluid and they do a great job in what they do. But, uh, you know, you'll see other kind of alternative methods of financing deals kind of step in. And we'll talk a little bit about more of that uh, with Capital Spring in a couple of couple of weeks. And then I just think you need patience and perseverance. It's not going to be as easy as it was. It's just not going to be as easy to find the money or find the buyers or find the sellers because they're not going to be quite as many of them as, as maybe there were before. But all in all, I'd say all that. And I tell you, I, I hope my temperature here is pretty, pretty warm because I'm, I'm pretty positive about where we are in the industry. And maybe you all who are on this webinar don't agree with me, but from our standpoint, in terms of the momentum that's come back to the industry, the M&A, the QSR, especially M&A space, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm uh, mildly bullish at this point that we're going to have a pretty strong uh, fall, a pretty strong fall and a pretty healthy fall too. Any comments there, John? The only thing that I would add in there is, Rick, is that if this continues, you know, if the QSRs and the pizza, con and this continues through the summer, and we start to see the casual dining, you know, some of the family dining opening back up again, and, and if that doesn't impact the QSR space, then I, I agree with you. I think that, that a month worth of activity with some of the casual and family and fine opening up. And if that QSR remains strong, I could see quite a bit of deal making being done this fall. And it might not, and the other side of what you're saying is it may not, it may not stay that way. You know, QSR may go back down to where it was, right? And 
That's going to be, yeah, that's the big, that's going to be the big, the big question post shutdown. What, what happens to those volumes? They go back to pre-COVID. You know, that doesn't mean that you're not going to have deals in the fall. It just means the valuations and the lenders are going to come to grips a little bit differently with those valuations. So, yeah, Yeah, sure. We have time for probably a couple of these questions. Any, any of them are favorites of yours or ones you want to address maybe before we wrap up here? Yeah, you know, I'll, I want to I just talk about, you know, our, our, let's see, let's look at this here. You know, will private equity family offices thrive or go, go away? You know, Rick, when you and I were talking last week, you were talking about partnering with a, with a good operator. And, and is private equity and family offices going to thrive or go away? You know, I think they could thrive if they partner with a really good operator. And they need to make a change, though, I think, from what they did pre-COVID. And that's they need to they need to put enough equity into these deals to run them for the long term, and I think there are a lot of PE companies, mainly brands, not so much franchisees. They like the leverage, and they levered them up, like some of the PE firms have done in the past in the past ten years. I'm not so sure, I'm not so optimistic about them thriving. But you know, if they partner with a good operator, they put, a, yeah. they put enough yeah. equity in hey, to run these. Tackle businesses. one other question here. What what else do you see? Uh, any brands well, that you see emerging as, as big winners from, from this? Yeah. You know, it's interesting on the brands. I'm thinking of a couple of regional pizza concepts that have sort of emerged. You know, one is Marco's Pizza. It's based in Toledo, Ohio. Uh, I was talking to their CEO a couple weeks ago, Jack Buderek. You know, the last four or five weeks, they've been up 20 to 25% in sales. These are kind of regional pizza brands. You know, Topper's Pizza, which is based in Wisconsin. You know, these are, these are some brands that I think through the crisis were able to, you know, really hone what they're all about. You know, I'm thinking of a concept like Hui Magoo's, you know, a small little brand down in uh, Florida turned comp positive a couple of weeks ago. You know, Salsarita is a small chain uh, owned by a friend of mine, Phil Friedman. You know, a lot of a lot of companies have found their way during this COVID crisis where, you know, you take a look at family dining, fine dining, casual dining, you know, they've been hobbled, you know, they, they, they've, they've had to work to try to, to do to go, but there's, there's not that many success stories in there where some of these fast casual and some of these uh, regional pizza, regional QSR have been able to find themselves during this COVID crisis. And I, I think those are the ones that you want to keep an eye on going forward. Really nice. I've been heavily focused on QSR. Those are really good examples of, of, of different types of concepts that are succeeding. And, and it's a really thoughtful comment. So thank you very much. You know, John, I, I just uh, appreciate your time. You know, I always uh, love the Restaurant Finance and Development Conference and all the material you put out through the monitor, which we love and read every year and, or every month, I mean, and, and also the Franchise Times uh, publication that you do. You guys do a great job. And Honored to have you on the, you know, on the call for everyone who's on the webinar here. This is our information. If you have any questions, please feel free to let us know. Uh, here's a little disclosure. Before I go, I'll just uh, take it off of, again, off of the stop share, and I'm going to see if we had any more questions or comments, but we did have one more. What will franchisors do differently now? Do you see more franchisors active in taking back stores or developing operating capability if equity light? And, uh, you know, that's a, it's an interesting, it's, it's a really interesting comment. So thank you for that comment. Yeah, I've seen this before. And, uh, you, you know, you know, basically the model went like this back in, 
back in, you know, back in the, you know, recession, you know, back in the great recession, you saw people coming back and, you know, franchisors were buying out of necessity, right? And the person who asked this question knows the brands uh, that, that, that did this, and, and one of them particularly, that they came in out of bankruptcy when buyers did not emerge to buy these businesses, and they took them over, they remodeled them, they shut down the bad stores, they changed the asset type, and then they refranchised the stores when they came out of bankruptcy. And when the, when the market got better and there was now a fluid M&A market. So that was the playbook for a lot of the struggling brands. A lot of the good brands, of course, held on to their stores. And then they waited until 2014 when things started to heat up. And then they were the ones who sold their, their stores to the, uh, you know, in, in, in high quantities and in a rapid fashion to these young family offices in New York with the Harvard MBA types, right? So, so that's kind of the playbook that happened to make it asset light. I think, you know, if... I think the playbook is probably the same for struggling franchise for franchisors. If they have a bunch of stores in the hands of franchisees who aren't doing well and they ultimately work them out, work them out, work them out, and there's not any buyers that emerge from them, then I think you'll probably see a franchisor step in as, as a last resort. You know, no one wants to reduce their footprint, although COVID-19 has given people the firepower to go to the street and explain why that would happen. But I don't know that I I don't know that I necessarily see some franchises are taking advantage and buying back stores. I mean, there are a couple of brands that that do have decent company ops. You know, Arby's comes to mind, right? They they over half their stores, I believe, are company owned. I mean, they they come to mind as someone who might continue to to build and you know to grow and maybe buy some franchises out. And there are several others examples as well. I don't know if you have an answer to that, John. Well, you know, I think Rick. In the first three weeks of the COVID shutdowns, I think they were probably thinking, you know, how many of these stores we're going to have to take over. But as sales have picked up strongly through April and through May, I think it's probably less of an issue. And you are right. I mean, Arby's, you take a look at Arby's, Wendy's, they have the capability of uh, picking up these stores. I think what the real asset light operators would say is, look, we've got the ability to put these stores into a large franchisee, we can move them around and we don't have to actually take them over ourselves. So that's that's going to be the argument of the of the real asset light franchisors. For you know fortunately the sales have picked up strong here in April and May and that's probably there'll be a number of workout situations that they're going to have to deal with but I don't think it's going to be as bad as it as it looked like the first couple of weeks. Yeah. Clearly so. Well, I, I really appreciate your time, John. Uh, it's an honor talking with you. Thank you, everyone, for attending today. Reach out to us anytime again. In closing, we'll send out this webinar and uh, and the presentation in the next few days. And reach out to either John or I if you if you want to chat anytime. We'd be honored to chat with you. So, John, thanks a bunch, and uh, see you guys. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes podcasts, videos, white papers, webinars, and a list of our M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital LLC give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.